Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? as loud as my voice sounds that's so weird I, i'm sure it's my jacked up ass computer i refuse to buy a new one until i have a job so. you still haven't gotten a new computer no i have a computer from uh 2012 13 oh yeah my I, God, can- <laughs> I wish i could buy you a new computer i know don't oh worry about it i will no and it's fine i can hold this here it's okay i'll just talk loudly Oh my God. I know it's bad. It's bad, but I need a job. They're not, I went to the Apple store because Miles' computer broke and his is newer. <clears throat> and they were like, yeah, they start at 13 or 1200. I'm like, oh man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway, but I know bad. I need one. I'm not, I'm aware. I'm aware. I'm aware. Hey, that's half the battle. Just being aware. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Going over there in Ventura. I mean, it is. It, it's okay. I feel like this morning was a rough morning um, in terms of you know, marriage is just very, very hard. The marriage is so hard. My marriage is so hard this morning. Oh my, my marriage God. is so hard. My marriage is so hard. Also, you're in a new. Pl- are you in a new place? Where are you? Yes, I'm coming to you live from a new studio. <laughs> I'm in the basement. Oh, we we like kitted it out, and this is where all the music stuff is, and this oh. is where actually Aaron's been working at, from home since his heart attack, and he does his sessions um, virtually down here. So it's that's much amazing nicer now than it was. That's amazing, yeah. and you have internet down there, and he can just do. I mean, you kind of just dropped a bomb. You're like, since Eric, uh, Eric. <laughs> You're now married to Eric, whoever that is, um, Aaron, since Aaron had his heart attack. Not a sentence that you hear all the time. That's from true. You. That's true. My my husband survived yes. like, miraculously a heart attack, the kind of heart attack that he had one in three people die from. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a big deal. Big deal. Big deal. And it was extremely um, just why, <clears throat> excuse me, eye opening and like, listen, l- try to reduce your stress, people. Try not to take on everything. Yeah. Because you cannot take on everything. Well, I feel like, yeah, we've talked about this before, but it just, it does hit home that like um, the body is such a miraculous machine. And when you hit a certain critical level, there is nothing the body can do on its own to, you need help, you need intervention and you need it fast. And if you don't get it, that's it. And so I think one of the miraculous things is that it it sounds like he knew from what I know, he knew what was happening to him. Yeah, he knew immediately and he drove himself to the hospital, which is not a good idea normally. And so, yeah, so he survived, but like just, just, just barely. And, and, you know, like, listen, there's the relief that your loved one is alive and that lasts for a bit. And the gratitude that everybody has for you having survived lasts 
for a while and then it goes away. And yes. then you have the same exact problems yes. that you have always had. And it does sometimes feel like, wow, this is a long time to have the same problem. Right. Right. I have the same thing. And I, I have the same thing too. And I think that tragedy and a crisis and or crises, they do shake things up, of course, and you're grateful. But then the human body and mind and psyche are such that it wants to then go on and find the new normal and get back to business of being human. And I think that is one of the weirdest things that I know about crisis and grief is that it then ends and it gets into this new phase, which is we have to just keep living our lives and the same bills come and the same, like it, it's a, such a weird thing. And also it's, yeah, there's like a pandemonium and adrenaline and excitement. And then there's the day to day. How do we live in this new normal? And you still fucking, people still annoy you even though they lived through something. And even though you lived and helped them through it, you're still annoying them. I mean, it's, it's, you're, totally. it's that totally. thing of wherever you go, there you fucking are, whether you've survived there shit you or fucking are. Yeah. Whether you've survived shit or not. Can I tell you when I saw your, the, I know you so well, or I think I know you so well that when you texted me hopping on with no punctuation, I said, uh Oh, not looking good over there. Something's no. going on over there. Yeah. I, I, it was like, um, we're just, we're just struggling to figure out. Well, okay. There's a lot of things going on, but I think the bottom line is one marriage is hard. Yes, we know that. But also the things which I think I need from my partner to feel safe in the world and vice versa, he feels aren't actually the things that make me feel safe in the world. Like saying, getting reassurance from somebody or promises or, and, and, and in this case, I mean, I can be honest, we're talking about finances and, you know, Miles has a lot and, and look a lot of a fear about money and I do too, but he has a different flavor. And so um, he thinks that I think, and I do the same, that if I say the right thing and, and, and we look at the numbers, our numbers in a certain way and talk about them in a, to a certain length that the, that the fear will go away about our finances. Or if I bring in more income, I do agree. It will, it will lessen that fear, but like the heart attack, it lessens for a while and then we'll find something new to really freak the fuck out about. And it's really hard to see like that. This is an inch. A lot of things are an inside job of, I need to do what I need to do to be responsible for myself and have faith in myself and whatever's going on in my world. And sometimes no amount of words and reassurance from my partner or someone who loves me does the complete job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you said it. That's exactly what it is. And also, like, we say marriage is hard. Well, um, another way of saying it is like, people are hard. I am hard. I am hard to deal with. He is hard to deal with. We are hard to deal with together. We have three children who very often are hard to deal with, you know, and we like, and also it's whack-a-mole because 
sometimes we're fighting about money and sometimes we're fighting about sex and sometimes we're fighting about the kids and sometimes we're fighting about who does more chores. And it's also banal and quotidian when you play it out like that, but it, it is the essential drama of my life. Yes. Is this, you know, this interpersonal, the, the whole thing about sh the por the porcupines, you know, we're porcupine. Everybody who's in love is porcupines you, you want to get close, but if you get too close, you're going to stick each other with the quills. So porcupines have to keep a certain type of a distance from, from each other, even when they're in love. It feels like that. Yeah. I mean, everybody is very, very um, sensitive and everybody is really struggling with how can I, this is my interpretation, how can I remain safe, feel safe, get my needs met? Um, and, um, I will get them, try to get them met from myself, but that I didn't really learn how to do that. Right. So then I will try to get them from you and that works sometimes, but it's like there, it's a constant for me of saying, okay, like and our couples therapist talks about this, like what is mine and what is not yours? What is your, I mean, it's like separating it out. It's like, I am looking for someone to co-sign my bullshit and also assure me that um, everything is fine and um, give me guidance, hope. And it, it's too much to ask of anybody. And it's too much to ask of myself, which is why I think the burden has to be shared amongst a lot of people and resources, which is like meds and like therapy and like support groups and friends, you know, and I think it's thank gosh for friends. Like, you know, my husband doesn't have, he's not outgoing like I am. He doesn't have the the amount of support that, that I have. So like, I can talk to you about things. I can talk to you about five people and be honest and say, I'm real, he's scared about this. I'm scared about this, but I don't think he has that. And so I'm also like, you got to make friends, dude, but that totally. doesn't help to say to someone. No. Well, it does. Maybe it does. And maybe it doesn't. I'm I'm the miles in, in my relationship. I'm I'm the miles. And, you know, I don't know. I'll, I'll actually sometime I'd like to talk to Miles <laughs> about it because we are Miles and I are both married to people with big personalities. And we I'll, I'll try to say I hope when Miles listens to this, I'll have to tell me if, if I hit the nail on the head or not. But like, you, we are drawn to people with these wonderful, gregarious, outgoing personalities because we don't have them. We find their warmth so, you know, so um, enchanting. And we like, in some ways, the drama that it is to be with that person. And then every day it, it, it gets, it gets hard. And like, Sometimes we act opposite to how the other person is. If he's being despairing, I feel like I have to be, you know, provide the hope. And when I get hopeful, he gets despairing. And I sometimes I wish like we could, you know, we, we could just be the same thing at the same time. And the other thing is what I'm really coming to recently is I still have so much shame about everything, even just having a feeling that. I, it is not my first, second or third thought that when I'm having a feeling, I should share it with somebody. First, it's tell myself I don't have the feeling. Second, it's try to get rid of the feeling. Third is say you're an asshole for having needs, you know, and then maybe like 10th down the line, I go, oh, I wonder if I should say it to somebody. 
Yeah. Yeah. I know. I think that's, I, I would assume that's how it is for Miles as well. And I think you did hit the nail on the head. And also, like, I think the other person gets so used to being like, oh my God, I have so much going on. Okay. I have to tell you, like, I now wear glasses with a f- chain. Okay. Okay. Yes. Old people situation. Yes. I have a hair clip Love with it. a dog on it. It, it. It's not good over here. So I, I have so much. Okay, wait. I have to like. You, oh my god. Okay, I have to, one of these things has to go. I've turned into a golden girl in front of your eyes, <laughs> Sophia. Right, Sicilian Sophia. And now because I've got. Oh my god. Okay, hold please. Okay, once I do this, it'll be better. But yeah, I had to, I kept losing my glasses. I have six pair of glasses that I cannot find ever. And now I, I just hang them around my neck and now, and Miles does too. And we've officially, I said, it's December 2nd. We're now old people because we both have these things. So anyway, we're just, we're getting old. But yes, so marriage to me cannot be easy. Marriage to him is not easy. And and you call, you you layer it on yeah i i it's interesting it's hard for me to suss out what is actually finances sex whatever the act, the thing is and what is a deeper fear of not being taken care of i, I don't know yeah well and they're all of a piece i mean it's all like we forgot all every feeling we've ever had or every um thought process we've ever had started was was programmed you know from from day one and like it's just really hard to know that it's a programming thing know that there's a different way yeah agree to the scary thing of changing it stick with the difficult thing of learning a new discipline to a, a new approach to something it's all hard Gwen uh, what's her name Gwyneth Paltrow she put some book out like it's all easy oh fuck her. It's all hard. It's all very hard. Hey, let me run this by you. If you saw the Mother God cult documentary. You told me about it and I started to watch it. And I, it's so alarming. I did not finish it, but can you tell me like, she's alarming is the exact, yeah, she's not, she's, I like the way they film it, but she's, I, I, yeah. Tell me what your thoughts are. Okay. Well, it's the first, no, uh, it's the second cult I've heard of the other one being the guy who was going to go to space and everybody laid in bunk beds and oh, killed yeah. themselves with yeah, white Nikes the, on. Yeah. Right, right, right. That's Doe, uh, we, Doe from the Heaven's yes, Gate. Heaven's yeah, Gate. Yeah. yeah. We talked about that one. And I remember saying like, at least this guy wasn't trying to ruin anybody. He wasn't trying to, it wasn't a megalomania thing. He was just mentally ill. And he, he said things in, in, in a certain type of way that resonated for a certain type of people and it just, but it just had, it had that bad outcome. I think it's the same thing with this mother God thing. I think she was a very troubled kind of a, um, like I hate the term, but I can't think of something about it. Like manic pixie dream. Girl. Yes. She was just like yes. fantastical person with a, she, she was always, she was, 
she was one of those people where you say, well, you're either going to go this way and be like the most famous whatever in the world, or you're going to go this way and you're going to die in a hole. And she, and she went the way where she died, you know, died in a hole. Um, but really, at the, by the end, I was going, well, this is just alcoholism. Like we're trying to call it so many things. She died from alcoholism and anorexia because she wasn't eating at the end. And she was their part of their belief system is about the um, drinking colloidal silver, right. which is that thing that can turn you blue. She and turned blue turn at the blue. end. Yeah, I saw that scene. She turned I was blue like, at the end. What? Yeah. And what was interesting to me, usually what I focus on when I see these cult things is the cult leader. Like Keith Raniere was really fascinating to me. You know, even Charles Manson is fascinating. This woman is not fascinating at all. She she is just she or she was just very good at being an alcoholic at the center of a chaotic universe. Yes. What was interesting was all the people around her, and and I just kept thinking about like, I wonder why they needed her. I wonder why they felt they needed her more than they needed their what they're calling Earth families. She. What she basically did was she made YouTube videos that talked about spirituality in some vague way. And she had a website that talked about spirit. Not even a, she's not, she wasn't even as smart as that teal swan. That's what she, I was going to say. Was, teal swan is more manipulative in a way. Or she's like more, nasty. She's yeah. more, you can see it vindictive and like um, treacherous. And, and just such a narcissist. And I'm not saying that this other woman wasn't a narcissist, but she was more just like a sad alcoholic who, and, and I think part of what, what, I think what, why it went the way that it did is she started to basically live stream her life. And people who also felt lonely and alone and didn't have a life started watching and just wanted to be a part of it. And and they started giving her money. And then, of course, it started to be a business and they started selling things. But in the center of it, she was just having her wine and smoking her weed and progressively and literally like sitting, she was just be sitting in a bed and everybody's surrounding her sitting on the couch and everybody's doing everything for her. And it, and it, I don't get the impression, at least not from this documentary, that she was asking people to do any of this. Right. They, they just were, they yep. wanted it. There was some play happening that was very important for everybody's sense of delusion. Yes. And also she's, that's what happens with a waif character. So the waif character, right, is someone everyone wants to take care of. It, 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 even if they aren't aware that they're projecting that out into the world, you just have this sense. I've been there. I've never been the waif. I've been the, I've been the, the caretaker. So like you want to, you just, it, she doesn't have to ask you feel for sorry anything. For them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it really just reminded me of how so many alcoholics die where everybody wants to call it everything other than what it was. Oh, well, it was because, you know, like people will say, oh, well, they had a really hard job and they had too much stress. So their liver gave out or, you know, they had, um, they just had, you know, some people just can't metabolize alcohol. 
you know, instead oh of my God. What, what, what I almost never hear people say is, oh, yeah, she was a severe alcoholic and alcohol is a poison that will kill you if you let it. Yeah. Like, it just, yeah. Why are we trying to call it something fancier than what it is? Because, yeah, I think you're so right. It reminds me of Matthew Perry, too, of like totally. people are. It's interesting. I, I, even though he said, I want to devote the rest of my life to talking about addiction and recovery, when he died from addiction, people are like, well, he, you know, he died of a heart attack in the, in the pool. And I'm like, dudes, yeah, okay, in the jacuzzi. Oh, okay. He died because of addiction. But they don't, even though the person himself is saying, Please remember me for all the things I did about addiction and recovery. He's not saying, he said, Chandler's great, but what about all the stuff I did to help other addicts? And the guy drops dead young from addiction or what complications from addiction, whatever you want to say. And they still can't say he died from addiction. No, and now it's moved on to a conspiracy theory, and the girlfriend is saying it was, you know, the, everybody keeps saying, like, what well, was mysterious circumstances, and they're trying to read into, well, the Batman and his last three posts have the Batman, and I mean, the lengths that people will go to to not call something what it is, it's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's rough. It's rough. And part of me wants to say, well, is that what we're all always doing about everything all the time? You know, like of not necessarily feeling bold or brave enough to go into the heart of the real, actual, terrible thing that's happening. And so instead making up all these little dances around that. Right. And I think that's why you and I have sort of created... I'll speak for myself, but I see it in you too. It's like what saying the truth. Okay. Like if I can stick to the truth of what I'm in, in the situation, like I feel this way and I need to tell someone, this is why those recovery programs work. It's because you feel something, you want to do something, you say something, you process it. And maybe you have a chance of not, of it going away, lessening or making another choice. But I feel like it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to admit, like, I don't like this. This is bad. I did this. I told this lie. It sucks. But I do know that it's the only way for me, like I was just telling someone, like the truth of the matter is you can't If I tell you the truth, like I feel scared, I feel hurt, I feel sad, I feel like a failure, I'm in grief, there's no arguing with that. And if other people want to tell lies about it, that's fine. But at least I know, I think it goes to the abandoning part, right? The abandoning the self part. I feel like if we can say, um, um, you know, she, mother God died of, um, like weird stress or someone killed her, same with Matthew Perry, then we don't have to look at the ways in which we abandon ourselves too. Yes, exactly. And actually, what do I want to say? Um, Yeah, abandoning yourself is a disease and we're all dying from it. Yes. Let's just say you didn't, you did not just survive it. I would say 
you're thriving, um, at least from my sort of outsider <laughs> perspective of not knowing. But you seem to be thriving. So thank you for, for being with us. And oh. um, I also, my first thing is I just watched rewatched the scene in the restroom so you you are you know you are on the marvelous miss mazel and mrs mazel and um you are brilliant and everyone should watch but that restroom scene slays me so Uh i just want to say um great work i i i i um i love actors and i love watching them and i love rewatching scenes when i'm like investigating our guests and stuff so um but first of all, you were you were born not here. You were born in no. England. Is that right? Or am I making that up? Okay, yeah, so okay. I just wanted to No, it's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, in, uh, okay. in the... I'm so fascinated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I was born in a little town called Huntingdon, which is in Cambridgeshire in the UK. It's um technically I guess you could say it's, it's in the East Midlands. Um, so it's about okay. an hour and a half. So, so you, you grew up there and then it's yes. so interesting because I was watching interviews and there is something yeah. in your, when you're not acting, <laughs> obviously when you're acting, I can't tell anything. But then in the interview I was watching another podcast actually you did with someone um, yeah. that was also a video. Um, I noticed a little something and I was like, he has a little something in his voice that's so beautiful. It's very, um. Definitely not American, which, you know, whatever, we all have our stuff, but it's, it's right, beautiful. Right. So tell me about your journey from from England to the U.S., first ah, of all. Okay. Yeah, so um, I'm, as I said, I'm from like this, this little town um, called Huntingdon, which about, I had to say about, I think, it's about eight to ten years ago, somebody sent me an online article, and it was actually voted as the armpit of the U.K., um, like the, <laughs> like the worst. Okay. That's like Gary. I'm near, I'm from near Gary, Indiana, got which you. is the, considered the armpit of the U S. So yeah, we, we got, we got that in common. Okay. We got, I, we survived that as too, as well. Um, yeah. but yeah, so, um, my dad is American. My mother is English. And, um, so he was stationed in, uh, various places growing up, but places where my mother didn't, you know want to move the family. I think he was stationed in Korea and Nebraska, you know, all places where my mother had no interest whatsoever (laughs) in living. And then um, he got his final kind of sweetheart uh, post in the Air Force, and it was Hawaii. And uh, once that came through, it was a no-brainer. So we moved from England to Hawaii, just outside of Honolulu. And um, how old were you? How old were you, Leroy? I was uh, almost 14 years old. And so I was this, you know, this funny black kid with this thick (laughs) English accent in probably the most beautiful place on the planet. Um, (laughs) So I kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, But it was beautiful. Were you, were you? Were you a kid who, um, we always ask this, like, did you know from a young age that you were an artist? No. Um, No, I I have to be honest and say no. I mean, I always, my uncle, um, my uncle Richard, who lived with us, uh, because when my dad, my dad would be stationed away for a couple years at a time, and my mother was raising me and then three of my siblings, so um, her brother would live with us. And he is a, um, he was a budding science fiction writer and a lover of all things cinema. So he, <laughs> I used to watch 
movies with him late at night, way too young to be watching, you know, things like Jaws and, um, you know, assorted horror and sci-fi movies. Um, so I have him to thank um, my love of that stuff. But he uh, he recorded this uh, this little, we came up with a show, it was called The Spike Show. Um, that was his nickname for me, was Spike. I don't know where he got that from. But um, so he would record... He would like put glasses on me, and I think at, at one episode he had me holding like this fake cigarette, and he just kind of got off on on watching my kind of burgeoning personality um, kind of flourish in front of the camera. So I think he knew more, much more than I did, but I didn't even, you know, I always grew up loving um, movies and loving going to the theater. Um, it's so much more kind of. Uh, baked into um, young education uh, in England is is the theater. And um, so going to see that, but I never, I don't know, I never saw myself doing it. I, I loved, just loved watching it. So um, it wasn't. Okay, as- so what, what was your, I always ask, like, what was your first memory of going to the theater and being like, that is pretty cool what I'm seeing? How old were you? And do you remember what you were watching on stage? It's interesting. The first, the first thing that I truly remember in its entirety going to see was actually in Hawaii, believe it or not. Um, and there was a, there's a group there. I'm not sure if it's still in existence, but an organization called Honolulu Theater for Youth. And so they would, um, they would foster um, coordinating, you know, elementary schools or, or junior highs, high schools to go see plays in Hawaii. And um, so I can't remember the name of it, but it was about Hawaiian um, folklore. And it involved a lot mm. of mask work. Um, and I just found, I remember a, a woman spoke to us in the beginning, um, kind of welcoming all the students there, um, told us a little bit about the play, and then they actually did the play. And it wasn't until the end, at curtain call, that we realized that the same person that had been giving like the pre-show briefing was actually one of the actors in the show, but in, you know, mask and full and full costume. And so I remember just staring at her and, and kind of marveling at kind of the, the transformation to be able to one minute be like a, you know, regular old human being uh, talking face to face. And then the other to be completely kind of in this made up reality and to be able to go back and forth between the two mm-hmm. so easily. Um, and so I, I just remember, so you were kind a of, teenager. yes. Yeah. Um, and, and until then, I mean, my, my mother, um, you know, I remember one of my, the first memories is watching, uh, I Claudius. I don't know if you ever have seen. Yeah. Oh yeah. My mom had me watching I Claudius and also, it was around the same time she introduced me to I, Claudius, and Brideshead Revisited, mm-hmm. and a lot of that. I, but I, Claudius, was not no. a joke. That was some serious No, I mean, stuff. you've got, like, you've got Patrick Stewart with hair. You've got, like, <laughs> you've got, like, Sean Phillips and, and, um... And uh, John Hurt, and, I mean these these yeah. legend these tight and of course Derek Jacobi right these titans of the stage and so when it come, came to like television I grew up wa- and, and film I grew up watching things that were way beyond like my yeah. comprehension I would be sitting there watching like these three hour long period dramas this little kid just kind of being fascinated by um by the world by by you know these and i've always loved history too so 
you know, here I am, yeah. you know, I was watching like Remains of the Day at 14, not, you know, or yeah, ha- Howard's End. Not, that's not, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was, I was a little like that. Like I got really into, um, yeah, like Room with a View with Helen yes. Carter. Yes, and Julian Sands. And I was a weird kid like that. Oh, so beautiful, beautiful. Yes. So, okay, so you were a lover of art, but you didn't necessarily yes. see yourself as the artist yet. Okay, so, but that, because then you went to, you went to, I'm assuming you went to high school in Hawaii, right? And yes. then, mm-hmm. um, and when it came time for college, yeah. uh, did, you went to, to Loyola, right? Mary I, did. No. I did, I did. Yeah, I went okay, to LMU. I my yes, you did. You, I okay, love that. I, yes. I do. I like doing that. I love that. <laughs> I like, okay, so. When it came time for college, mm-hmm. how did you pick where you were going to go? Because a lot of our listeners, um, it's so funny. It says my network is struggling, which is going to, and I'm like, same girl, same to my network. But anyway, <laughs> um, just like, but um, so forgive me if we have a lag. It's just how it is in Ventura. I live in Ventura it's, by the okay. ocean, so it's a little, uh, but um, okay. gotcha. so when it came time for you to go to college and you were like, I'm going to, yeah. how did you pick? Easy. Um, my uh, my older sister, Charlene, she's six years older than me. She has always been like my best friend, right? And thick as thieves. And so I always wanted out of complete, you know, sibling love. Um, I wanted to do everything that she did, but then do it just a little bit better. You know what I mean? And so, <laughs> and she won't mind me saying that, but um, so she, uh, they, LMU recruits pretty heavily from Hawaii. So I remember actually going with my mother, my dad um, was stationed. No, my dad, my dad was, was around too, but he, he didn't go with us. But I remember me and my mother going with my sister to the LMU uh, presentation at one of the hotels in downtown Hawaii. And then um, just now remember at this point, like my introduction to the United States was Hawaii, which is kind of like an abnormal, right. it's not indicative of, of that. But like, I was, I was like, Oh my God, that looks so cool to go to the mainland. And, and um, so when she, you know, she ended up going there, I was like, easy, I'm going to go there too. Um, and I was a poli sci major still, I had no, um, I, I didn't wow. really think about doing it. You know, I went on a, and I was, uh, went on a full ride debate scholarship. So I was, I was on the debate team, a debate nerd. Okay. So the, here's, here's <laughs> the thing. We have had so many debate nerds, forensic nerds you, who have gone on to, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Really? Forensics debate, uh, contemporary, all these things. Oh, oh, Leroy, we have had, and it there and famous folks like yourself, like people who work in our well-known and they have started not in high school theater, not in um, community theater, but debate. And oh, then wow. they go on and they realize, that is yeah, so you are not. So we we are here to say because yes. a lot of people who listen to our podcast are still in high school. So we're here to say gotcha. debate. If you want to debate, we love it. So yes. okay, so you yes. had a full ride to Loyola on a debate scholarship. What yes, was your exactly. jam debate wise? What was your what was your forte? Like, what did you do? Well, one of the cool things is uh, I did policy debate. Right, so we were. I mean, I'm not sure how it's. I'm sure it's much more streamlined and much more uh, internet based today. But like back in the dark ages, we were we were the geeks rolling around these gigantic tubs of evidence, um, and so um, I was knee deep in that. I lived ate, you know, and just I could tell you everything about whatever the debate topic was that year. 
Now, Loyola, the interesting thing about Loyola, and especially being in Southern California, it kind of had a reputation of being very kind of uh, embracing the philosophy behind things and being really kind of... um, really kind of taking the debate out of the policy realm and making it about philosophy. Um, and in that way, mm. as a smaller school, you can uh, compete against and, and outperform some of these larger universities in the debate world, the University of Michigan's, the Dartmouth's, the Emory's. And that way we can make the debate on our terms. So it's like, oh, you think we're here to discuss U.S. foreign policy towards China, where we're actually going to argue the philosophical underpinnings of Western hegemony. And, you know, is it right to frame a debate discussion in a normative sense, like you should do this, you shouldn't do that, and really kind of getting kind of squirrely (laughs) with these arguments. So these teams would come in with these, you know, huge boxes of evidence ready to debate policy, and we're, we're over here um, just wanting to debate philosophy. So that was what really kind of got me. That was my jam because I, I didn't really, That's you amazing. Know. That I, I want to just say like the thing that I love about that, it is, it is a different way of looking at how to solve a problem. So, um, like, yes. and I think I could see how it's so practical and useful in anything that you do as a young adult and, and as moving forward is like saying like, okay, like they think they've got us because they're bigger, they're badder, they're more famous, they're fancy, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And if you kind of turn the thing on its head and make it on your own terms, you, you have a chance of, of sort of beating them. I love Absolutely. it. I love whoever came up Absolutely. with the little Marymount philosophy. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. It was long. It was long in existence. There was this. Uh, the debate coach there was just kind of being very kind of funky and forward thinking, and just would think outside the box. And for somebody like me that came from a very kind of linear way of thinking, you know, you study for the test, you you know, uh, and you do good on the test, and right. you move on. It just completely changed the way that I th- I looked at the world, which I think really helped when it came to transitioning to. To, to theater and to and to the performing arts, you know, looking at the world in a much more expressive yeah. way. Are you, would you, um, because, you know, I went to conservatory for undergrad, as did Gina, as did a lot of people. I went to a conservatory, got a BFA. I rolled uh-huh. my eyes, but I, I, I just didn't roll them. I'm no. But are you, would you, or would you say that you are happy that you didn't get a BFA for that you mm. went to acting school for a master's? Are you glad that you? I mean, I guess hindsight's twenty twenty, but are you glad right. the path that you went up? Yeah, yeah. I think I, for somebody like me, I definitely it, it really helped me to not be in a conservatory setting because I was really. Uh, finding myself in so many different ways. And I was incredibly insecure. Um, I, you know, I was always striving to see, like, where did I fit in in the world? Because I felt I came from set my background was so odd or so unique, I should say, um, that I kind of didn't know where I, I, f- I fit in in the world. And so I needed a much broader uh, education. I needed like those foundation, uh, the foundations yeah. in in all different subjects in order. I think just to be ready for a master's program. Um, there's no. I, I just don't think I would have been prepared any other way. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that it's there's an argument to be made that like no 16, 17 year old is ready, <laughs> but mm-hmm. there are some because at our school yeah. there were some 17 year olds that were like, oh, I'm a theater. This is what I do. I'm a theater actor. And um, right. so, yeah. Okay. So tell tell me how it went from, okay, so like I'm studying poli sci, I'm a debater. How did you yeah. get into to theater? How did that happen? Um, so it's, it's uh, in a really kind of roundabout way. Um, my, my roommate, my freshman year, he only uh, stayed for one semester. He kind of just disappeared and didn't come back for the spring semester. It's still a mystery. Um, but the good thing that happened, I had made really good friends with this guy, Jared, who lived right across the hall. And when I found out that my roommate wasn't uh, going to be returning, I was really nervous about, you know, some rando, you know, coming in to replace him. So I was like, hey, Jared, do you want to, how about coming to, to, to just moving across the hall? We made it work. And um, Jared was a theater major. So I I was kind of fascinated because I think I remember saying something in the beginning like, oh, wow, that's really that's really generous of your parents to to kind of like let you spend their money on <laughs> a college education to study theater. It was, or, and I was like, why don't you just kind of can you yeah. just go out there and do it? Like and so I was that kind of ignorant about it um but long story short his friends were so much more interesting than the poli sci majors so much more interesting and the other people in the um all due respect for the people you know in that in that uh honors program um that year lovely people still my friends to this day but the theater kids were just infinitely more interesting they seemed more free they were kind of moving through the world in, in, in just a different way. And somebody that was so kind of insecure, I was drawn to it, kind of like a, you know, a, a moth to a flame. And um, yeah. yeah, so and they were, there was um, a director, an outside director that had just um, came back to the States after studying at Lambda. And uh, he, oh, yeah. he wanted to do a production of Hamlet. And he specifically wanted a black Hamlet and a black Horatio. Um, now my, he's, Good friend to this day, Deshaun Terry. You may know him from the morning show. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know who that is. Yeah. So he, we were in the same, we graduated from Loyola. We were in the same year. Um, also, that was ex, that talk about a magic class. We also had Chris Sullivan from This Is Us and several Broadway shows. You had Linda Cardellini from Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, I love, and she, yeah, from um, Dead to Me. Dead to Me, me. yeah. Yeah. Busy Phillips. That was, that was that was in your undergrad or your Under, undergrad, undergrad? Yeah, Busy Phillips was also uh, in that. Year. It was just kind of like this. It was like this. This kind of just. Oh, and Colin Hanks as well. I mean, it was just like a. And here I am too. Like I said, very insecure at that point. I was, you know, I was really overweight. I I was I I was just kind of unhappy with myself, and so I just was just drawn to how <clears throat> free um, these kids were. And um, and so fast forward again to that production of Hamlet, there was only one black uh, theater major at that time, and it was Deshaun. And um, so Deshaun reached out to me. <clears throat> we had met randomly just, you know, through through my my roommate and his theater friends. And he's like, look, they're specifically looking for a black Horatio. I know you like Shakespeare audition for it. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm not going to get it, but whatever. So I auditioned. Wait, okay, wait, wait. I have a question. I have a question <laughs> because I'm a former therapist. I have to get a whole <laughs> when, when, when you were asked to audition, 
what was the first, I mean, you said, I'm not going to get it, it, it to, to, but you, but what was the feeling? Were you afraid? Were you excited? Were you like, okay, I don't know any better. So I'm just going to go or what? I think my brain was incredibly excited because for whatever reason, um, I'd always been drawn to Shakespeare. I mean, ever since we studied it, um, I think, I think, Romeo and Juliet was the first one that I remember reading in an English class. And I just, I was, I got off on the challenge of kind of decoding the language. Um, I always, I, I just kind of liked rising to the challenge. And then, as you know, Shakespeare's one of those things, the more that you read, the more that you kind of immerse yourself, it becomes like second nature. Right. And it's so true. I, I love that about Shakespeare. And that's why, like, I'm a, you know, I'm a Latina and I try to get like younger Latinos into yes. Shakespeare because I'm like, listen, once you get it, you folks, once you get it, it's going to be amazing. Like you, it's like learning a new language. But yes. I remember when I sit, I, I reading like um, the first folio or mm -hmm. something, I got really into it. And when it started to make sense, I like had a party. I was like, I get it. Right. So you're, and you were also like, a person who likes puzzles, yes. likes, likes to solve things. So that yeah. makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. You're like, this is challenge i'll go to yeah. the audition and how was the audition the, how was the audition? the audition went the audition went surprisingly well because my body even though intellectually i was like yeah i got this but then i was just like oh yeah but when it comes to acting you've got to it's with your whole body it's with expression and so my approach to shakespeare was always you know you, you honor honor the text but like intelligibility right is is the key and so i just I knew what the words meant in my mind. And so I was just like, I'm going to, I'm just going to act like I'm speaking, you know, every day, just colloquial speech. And it worked. And, um, and I got the part and I was like, okay, like now, now what do I do? Um, because I was incredibly green. Um, and then uh, something really random happened. You know, um, I can honestly say there was a fork in the road moment for me where it, changed like the course of my life and I had um going into so I just done I did that in my junior year this production of Hamlet so going into my in the summer before my junior and senior year there was an or there's it's still in existence called the Hansard Fellowship and what they do is they take like um I think it's 16 of the most promising political science majors in America then you go to London for the summer and then the, the fall semester, and you, you, um, you act as an assistant for a member of parliament. You take classes at the Holy London shit. School of Economics. It's like serious, serious business. Yeah, it's, it's like if, if, you get, okay. if you get selected for that, that's one of those like Luminati type things, right? It sets you up for, for great things to happen. So, of course, no-brainer, right? Folly Sci major. But then, on a whim... Um, the national, the, um, the Roy, it was still called the Royal National Theater. Um, now it's just, of course, yeah. the national. They did a, they do a summer program for, uh, professional actors and aspiring actors. And it's all professional actors except for four students. They take two from the UK and two from the US. And then you're invited to go over and you, you study at the national. Um, for the summer. Oh, and I know where this is going and I can't wait. So guess which one I picked, right? So it was literally one of those in bed, lying in bed, not being able to go to sleep. I sensed that it was what I, whatever this was, it was a big decision. And um, because, you know, theater, it just came along so out of the blue. And for whatever reason, I remember I had to go in there and talk to the head of the poli-sci department and was like, bear with me. 
I'm gonna say no to the Hansard Fellowship, and I want to go because I want to do this 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 acting thing at the National. And to this day, um, how did it go? How did it go? Did you wait? Here's the thing. So you got you were offered both fellowships. I, yeah. Were you offered both? I was offered both. I now was, this is because this is yeah because it, and I think it surprised. A lot of people, obviously, in the theater department at, at Loyola, because they would come, like the National would come, and then um, Bada the, at Oxford, that summer program, they would come and audition together. And so they were, I, I feel like I was just like a roster filler. Like they needed, in order to make the trip worth it, they needed to have like 20 students. Um, and, you know, they wanted they wanted a, a, as, as diverse a slate as they could get. And uh, so I found my way on that list. And I, I did a Shakespeare. They won two contrasting. I did a Shakespeare. And then I think, and then Deshaun actually uh, helped me out and picked out this, um, it was this monologue from this play Before It Hits Home by Cheryl West, which is about this, this kid coming to terms with the fact that he's kind of left home, gone to New York, uh, contracted AIDS, then has to come back to his family, and he thinks his mother is going to be the one that's going to take care of him, and his dad's going to shun him. But in reality, it's the dad that ends up basically nursing him for the rest wow. of his life. So, um, so I did those two. I did I did a Shakespeare. I can't remember, I did Edmund from King Lear, and then I did that. Oh. And then for whatever reason, they picked me to do the professional thing at the national and then all my the friends that i'd made in the theater <laughs> that were theater majors at loyola that auditioned they all got the bada program so it was one of those things where it's just like i have this is this is crazy that like i'm getting this opportunity they know something more than i do and so i i turned down that handside ah. fellowship did the national and then like here I am today. Okay, so, okay, okay, okay. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. <laughs> I get so excited by these stories, especially when it's people that, like, um, um, sort of uh, walk through doors that open. Yeah. Because I feel like it's such a hopeful message for us all that, like, sometimes the doors that open, you don't think they're going to open. Or as my husband says, sometimes you plant oranges and you get apples. But, like, it's all, <laughs> you walk through. Okay, you go to you're really going back to Europe after be, yeah. not having been there or did you go really yeah. to Europe when you lived in the States? No, no that was actually we I had gone back one time previous but like you know when my mother when we moved from the UK it was for a reason like my mother had always dreamt about move, going to America when she was a little kid going to warmer places and so it was never at the top of her priorities to like go back to yeah. England. My mom, my, mom, my mom came from um, Colombia and she was like, I'm never going back. And I was like, okay. So she never went back after she never. Entered. So it's a, I think it's a common thing when it's like, you're like done and you're, you're, you're getting away for a reason. I love yeah. that for a reason. Yeah. Okay. So you, so you go to the, to the program and then is yes. it just like, it's on from there. Then you're an actor. It, like you're that. It is. It, yeah, because it was during that program that, I mean, one of our master classes was taught by um, Ian McKellen. Um, we studied. No! With, no! Yes! Are and you guess, kidding? And, and, and this, is, this is what I'll always remember. When he was, when he was um, the first, our first day of class with him, he sat us in the room. There was like, you know, in a big semicircle, we're all sitting there, and he's like in the center, and he's just talking with us. And, you know, he's like, let me tell you a little bit 
about myself as if nobody, none of us knew who he was. But, and so he, he, he <laughs> was naming off like his numerous accomplishments. And then he's just like, yes. And you know, and I'm, I've also got a puzzling call. Um, I've just been offered a role in, I, I guess they're doing a, a movie version of Lord of the Rings and they want me to play Gandalf. And to think of it, you know, what, you know, how seminal that, that kind of became. But I was just like, what I loved, what I really got off on was, you know, being in front of somebody like that who would be able to just talk about a life in the arts and how he would be able just to kind of sit there and reminisce about working with this person and that person, working, you know, working with Judy Dench and having all these anecdotes. And he just seemed so in himself, which is something that I had yet to feel. Like I'd always still felt that I was kind of sitting on top of like who I was because yes. I was so just always wanted to fit in. I wanted to lose the accent. I wanted to, you know, I, I, I wanted to, you know, feel appropriately American. I was getting in touch with my, with my blackness as well. You know, um, I'm also biracial and, and so, um, I was just going through a lot, a lot of identity um, questions. And so I was just fascinated by every person that we met. All of these actors, you know, um, we got to study also with like Patsy Rodenberg, who, you know, it's like the, you know, yeah. she, she taught so many um, of our luminaries, you know, voice and speech and just really all this stuff about really kind of getting connected to that core. I found fascinating because I was like, yes, this is, this is what I need. I need to feel inside myself. And, and I remember doing, like I did my Edmund uh, monologue and got amazing feedback from these people that, you know, um, just the, the, that were so revered. And I was like, yeah. all right, I guess so I'm doing one. You were like, okay, I'm in the right place. Yeah. yeah. You were like, I'm in the right place. And so, okay. So I got to get to the, the, the Yale part. <laughs> that's no, okay. Yeah, so, that I mean, it's just it's amazing. So you, okay. So how long was the pro the summer program? Uh, that program, it went from June through um, mid August. Would you say that that was really like, where your life changed in terms of uh, uh, embracing being a professional actor. Ab yes, bingo, absolutely. Like um one of the great things about that program <clears throat> is that you got to see obviously what was really interesting about that part, they were trying out something new at the National that year, and they had like an actual rep company. Um, and it was, mm -hmm. they had, it was uh, 30 actors of color, 30 Caucasian actors, just part of um, an acting ensemble uh, that year at the National. And so we got to go backstage, we got to be in the green room, and just watching like this sense of community. Um, that these artists had. And I was just, I felt a sense of belonging. I, I saw people with this level of connection to one another, um, <clears throat> which is something I'd always desired to feel truly connected to people around me rather than feeling so alien all the time. So absolutely. Right, I was so, like, so separate. Yeah. And oh, it, yeah. So it, you okay. Yeah, it sounds like it changed your life and it changed. And that's like, if you think about it, Roy, that's like a relatively small period of time that you were there. Yeah. But it really sort of 
accelerated your whole life. Okay, yeah. so then you're like, you have to still go, you go back to go back. Loyola for another year? Yes, still a poli-sci major. Okay. Um, and so I graduate. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Yes, you're so- still a poli-sci and this is and this is what was really interesting, right? Um, so, like I said, I want to do everything that my sister did, but just do it a little bit better. So, my sister was an amazing student, and so there was very little room ab- above like her academic accomplishments and like the ceiling, right? And so, like I, I was a as much as I still loved, you know, m- my commitment to the debate team and obviously to to, to theater, I was still a nerd and I wanted to get the best grades I could. So I did. And I actually was um, valedictorian that I made it. That was like one of my goals was to, um, but it was really weird, right? Because I was, you know, so I valedictorian with a poli-sci major. And I remember our guest, the person that was going to be the, the guest speaker at Loyola's graduation was Henry Winkler, you know, from Happy Days. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so as, uh, you know, as uh, myself and, uh, another uh, student got to actually meet with him and talk with him beforehand. And I remember I told him everything basically I just told you. And Henry Winkler went to Yale, um, a graduate of, of, of Yale in the seventies. Oh shit, I didn't know yeah. That. And so he, he put, he was just like, well, you know, I went to a, I went to a pretty good program and he's like, you should, you should, you should think about, you should think about, about Yale because I, I was telling, I, I felt so conflicted. I was like, okay, so here I am graduated at the top of my class, but in, political science but i'm not i'm not feeling that that's where the pull is my pull is to this other weird thing that's just like come into my life relatively recently and um that conversation with him um and then again my good friend deshaun um uh who ended up going to juilliard he he right after um he also co-signed on the yale idea um, and that way we could also kind of like trade notes and like he would have his Juilliard training and have my Yale training and we could kind of, I don't know, take over the world or whatever. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, like, yeah, you really could take over. I mean, those, those are two of the, only the two of the best programs in the world. But, um, so, okay. So yeah. here's the thing that's, uh, I want to know is my question is when you were sort of like, okay, we got the, the, the poli sci route and we've got the acting route. Did your, did your close family and friends know that you were sort of struggling with which way to go? Oh no, not, not my, 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 my folks. I did, I did something and it was a gamble. Um, I didn't tell them anything. Like I, they, they, they came to see actually my mother and my sister came to see that production of Hamlet. Um, but, you know, as far as they knew, it was like an extracurricular activity that I was involved. You know, I'd become like the treasurer of the student run theater organization, but it was still just like this thing that I, that I would, I, I did. Hobby. Hobby. Yeah. And so I basically framed it. I was like, you know what? I'm kind of, I've been studying really hard. I'm kind of burned out. You know, can I, I want to take a year off between undergrad and law school because that was the assumed thing that I was going to go to law school but you know you kind of need to you need to take the LSAT right to go to law school I didn't take the LSAT I did not take the LSAT so um but I I wanted that year to kind of like clear my mind so I did I got a I got a a job working as a paralegal um for a big um a big law firm actually in here in downtown LA and I learned pretty, pretty quickly um that that life was not for me. I was like, I, oh, I was like, oh my gosh, like, you know, watching, you know, begging for time to go by, um, waiting for the weekend. I was like, I, I can't, I can't live my life 
like this. And so I still hadn't told my, my, my parents really what I was struggling with. So then, taking to Sean's advice, I auditioned for Yale. And I'd kind of, from my mind, I was like, okay, if I get in, I'll do that. If I don't get in, I guess I'll grin and bear it, go to law school and do all that. And so, oh my gosh, wait, wait, was Yale the only school you auditioned no, for? No, I auditioned for Yale, I auditioned for NYU and Juilliard. And, okay. Okay. and, okay. <clears throat> and um, so I did, I went and I did the audition in San Francisco. My friends drove me up um, and we kind of made a weekend out of it. I auditioned and then I got in. I, I and wait 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 we have to wait wait don't skip over this <laughs> because I am like fascinated by okay so you go to San Francisco and were you auditioning for all three did they do it all at the same time or is just um, Yale and then or they did all? it spread out I think yeah I think Juilliard was first so Juilliard was on Friday I had my first Juilliard audition okay. on Friday I found out that night that I had gotten a call back to Juilliard so I was like okay. Oh um, and then, so that next day I had the Juilliard callback and then my first, um, for NYU. And then, so the Ju- so I did that. I did my initial for NYU. Then I had, uh, then they were like, there will be, um, we will invite people. Our callbacks will be in New York, um, at NYU. Sure, right. And then, so then that was done. And then at Yale was, I had both the initial and then, and the callback on the same day, on the very next day, on the Sunday. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Since you ended up going to Yale, we'll focus on that one. <laughs> yeah. So, so that I yes. I'm not here with you until like 4 p.m. But anyway, I could be. So, because I will ask 10 million questions and then I will, yeah. And so, I can okay. talk forever too. Oh, okay. So. Me too. So, okay. So you go the Yale audition. How did it feel? What materials did you, what did you do? do you so, yes, I did. Yeah. So I, I by that I had worked with, uh, there was this wonderful, wonderful actress by the name of Sharon Madden, who um, helped to coach me. I'd met her. Um, she was involved with a, she came and mentored um, the student theater organization at Loyola. So I'd already had a relationship with her. She'd audit, she'd uh, coached, um, Deshaun into Juilliard. So I went to her and I was like, you know, can you work the same magic? So we decided, I worked with her for a couple months. We decided to go with good old Edmund from King Lear. Um, right. You know, a, an oldie but goodie. Um, still did also that before it hits home. And then we did some other, we developed like um, five other scenes, like um, a, uh, the scene from David Hare's play Plenty um, was one. I know that. Yeah, which I ended up doing years later with Rachel Weiss at the public in New York. So things kind of came around full full circle because I saw Kate Blanchett do plenty in London as part of that program, and it was at, it was like the most profound performance I'd ever seen. I was like, oh my god, I love this play. Um, so anyway, so um, I so I had about five things ready to go, um, and I also kind of I went to the audition going okay. I, I I have no money, <laughs> you know. I'm not from a rich family. I I don't have any resources, so I I want these people to know that I don't have any money. So um, I went in not ratty clothes, but kind of like kind of workouty kind of clothes, um, just to like <clears throat> in a way to kind of go like, okay, if you want me, 
you got to help me get there. And I also okay, so she's just she's just to interrupt. Like yeah. I that goes back to literally the Loyola Marymount technique of I am going to do this on my own terms. I'm going to not pretend yeah. that I'm like this, you know, loaded person that can just walk in. It's like it's like you're you're it's a way of like coming to things um with your own take on it, but also yeah. like being authentic in your own way. But also not stupid about it. Not like right. I'm gonna be flashy and pretend that I'm I'm already at Yale. So it's it's <laughs> right, very, right. It's specific choice and I love an actor that makes a specific choice. So okay, so yeah. you walked in and you were like wearing that kind of stuff and how I was walked the it, room? How was the, the room? room? The room was really really friendly. So at that point Evan Yanulis who now runs Juilliard, the acting program at Juilliard was running the program at Yale and so sh- I'm she was the first person I met. And in my head, um, I had always, Yale used to take students that were, had the reputation of taking students that were older, um, that were kind of looked like they were, you know, it's Yale, but like, so they were moneyed. Um, and I also kind of knew about the, the legacy of August Wilson. So I knew that there was, it was an institution that embraced blackness. So I kind of went in there and one thing that really helped me and I was determined to kind of use my outsider status to my advantage. So I, I, when you go to those auditions, those kind of group auditions, the, the level of tension is so thick. It, it can, it can choke you out. Right. And so I was like, I'm going to be the exact opposite. You know what I mean? I'm going to be cool, calm, collected, laid back, just, you know, I got nothing to lose. And I think that really helped me because, um, you know, I started talking with Evan right away. She wanted to know about me, about my personal history. And, you know, if I had any hold up, you know, why why did I want to go to Yale? Or were there any things that kind of troubled me about Yale that kind of made me iffy? And I did. I, I, I remember telling her, I was like, you know, you, you have the reputation for, you know, having older actors. I'm not, you know, at that point I was 21 and I was just like, so, and then, and then I, I said, I know you have the legacy, you know, of, of August Wilson, but you know, it's how, how are your, how, how are your black students? How do you, you know, I've heard certain things about, about these training programs, about wanting to um, make graduate cookie cutters and, you know, and I don't want that for myself because I know that I'm not. I'm not stereotypical. So, and she was very frank and open and honest. And so it just kind of made, it was a very easy kind of going free flowing conversation. And I went and I did my, my two pieces and she said, okay. And then I went, I remember I went, uh, this is how long ago it was. It was when Virgin Megastores were still around. And I saw, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. so I went to Virgin Megastore. Uh, I was in there just to kind of kill time. Jill Scott's um, first album had come out that week. So I was listening yes, to that. So I'm yes. like, I'm getting that album. I So I caught the Jill Scott album. And then there was another, there was another album um, that, that dropped that week as well. So I got those two things and kind of said to myself, look, if you don't get a call back, it's all good. Um, and so I went back and would, you know, my name, they would post like from, from the after, from each session, right. And my name was the only one that was called back from that morning session. And so I was like, this is, this is, this is crazy. I was like, is this really, is this really happening? Like, I was like, oh, okay. 
did your um at this point did your your mom did your family know you were doing no. this? <gasps> uh uh-uh. uh. No, okay. they still okay. thought that so you get, oh, they still you thought mean, I was just kind of like relaxing and getting ready for you know oh going to law school. So when I got like it was maybe like three three weeks later, I got this thin envelope in the mail from Yale and I assumed I was like damn it and I, I remember this like it was yesterday we were watching again this is how long ago it was we were watching Ally McBeal and I had let that I had left that um that Yale letter just like sitting on my bed I was sure it was a rejection a commercial break came I kind of you know got away from my roommates went into my room I was like let me just let me just get get this over with. Do it. Opened it, looked at it. And it was like one of those <laughs> moments where like think the room is vibrating. And I just saw the simple phrase like, you know, we would like to, you were pleased to inform you. We are offering you a spot um, in, in the acting program. And I remember coming out of my bedroom and going to my roommates holding this letter going like, uh, guys, I, I fucking got in. I fucking got in. And, it, you know, that we, you know. And then, again, like, the the rest is history. And I remember I was I was I was the worst employee after that, because so I found out in March, I I still had until July to go before I left that place before I went to New Haven. And every day. I was just in there. I'd like do the minimum amount of work and then I'd just be scrolling, reading about the East Coast and reading about like, um, about your new life, new life. Reading about your life. Yeah. So okay. So um um you 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 when do you tell your mom? Then, I don't understand. The next, like, my mom <laughs> I know. So it was the next night, right? Because I actually I think it was a couple nights later because I remember my roommate Mary, I was like, Okay, so how am I what do I do? How how am I gonna do this? And uh she's like just she's like just just tell him everything and then and then just she's like follow bad news up with good right away. So I was like, all right. Ooh. So I remember, I remember tell, I told my mother first, and I was like, yes, yeah, so, you know, uh, I, I don't want to go to law school. But I auditioned and got into Yale for acting. And so I got to tell them both at the same time. And, of course, it kind of took them by surprise. But my, my dad's thing was always about having something to fall back on. And so I was, always, I was able to soften the blow by going, look, and if – things go horribly wrong, I can always teach. And it's a degree from Yale. So it'll be, it'll be, it'll be fine. Had no intention of ever teaching, you know, cause I was going to be a superstar. Oh, so, correct. um, but like <laughs> that was able, that was able to kind of soften the blow. And then yeah. I have to say they were so incredibly supportive and I think it helped being the youngest it always helps being the youngest because, you know, my sister had already yeah. gone to law school, right? And she, so she was already at that point a practicing attorney. And so, okay, so we let the young one just go and, you know, do, do his thing and then he'll come back to reality oh, later. My, this story is giving me so much life right now <laughs> because we hear a lot of stories yeah. about <laughs> folks who, you 
who go and it's like this. Anyway, we don't hear a lot of, or I don't hear a lot of stories about artists who find their way and are able to, at a young age, really sort of, not that they don't have, you didn't have your ups and downs and peaks and valleys, but that you felt um, embraced by the arts Mm -hmm. and it continued to embrace you. I'm sure there's been dry spells and stuff like that, but it sounds like you knew, like it, it just feels right. Like what happened in your life? right and um i love to hear that okay so you're at yale now when you go to yale what if you had to say like what was it like there what was (sighs) what did you feel there was it great was it weird was it it was it was um it was incredibly tough um on a number on a number of different levels like anybody that doesn't really know like i said i was going through i was still finding myself identity wise and um you know, as being biracial, um, I was really kind of coming, especially at that point, I was really coming into embracing my blackness and, 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 and black culture, specifically like black American culture, because, you know, I got that through my dad, but we didn't live in it until I was like much older. So, you know, um, I was really enjoying and discovering that, that, that part of myself. And I didn't feel that um, initially, um, I, I, I remember like my first, I got there probably about two weeks before classes started. And I remember walking across campus, like, oh my God, Ivy and you know, all these, these old buildings. Yeah. And I remember there was, um, a, a black woman that was coming this way, a black student. Um, and, uh, I remember I kind of did like the, the black nod and, um, got nothing, <laughs> nothing in return. And I was like, oh, whoa, okay, that's, that's a first. And then I had, you know, remember I told you I was a horrible employee after I, I got into New Haven. So like being the nerd I am, I got, in, got into the history of New Haven. So I was kind of reading it. And I'd always heard that, Na- that New Haven was a bad city. When I got there, I was like, no, it's not a bad city. It's a black city. And it's a city that used to be a lot of those, you know, in, in the Northeast that used to thrive on shipping when that cratered. The economy kind of went down. And also during that time, too, at Yale, there was there was a lot of striking that was going on with like the college employees um, and people that worked yeah. in the kitchen. And of course, surprise, surprise, they're all they're all, you know, black and, 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 and Latino. Right. So and I'm just like, so it really I was like, what is this? Like what I, and I'm, I'm having to cross this picket line as a black student to go to class and it just felt it felt really weird. So that was in one way, and then in the second way too. I was on. I was not used to working in that kind of fashion. Like I was used to getting a bunch of information, studying for the test, going in, taking the test, and and you know, hopefully, you know, trying to get that A. The whole idea of performing a scene and then these eyes, these fifteen other eyes, plus the teacher looking at you and kind of and critiquing you. It was incredibly difficult. I felt so naked, so vulnerable. I was awful at taking criticism at that point because everything felt personal. And so I was right. going through that. I'm like, why do y'all need to know about my my personal family trauma? Why are you, why are you trying to get access to these parts of me that are for me? And like, why do, right. why do we need to, to do all this in order just to, to get up there and and act. And it took me a while to figure out why. So with the, you know, with the, with the racial dynamics, 
coupled with this new way of kind of feeling so personally open, it was really, really difficult. And I actually contemplated very seriously leaving. And um, I remember talking to, um, it was myself and two black women uh, in my class. And I remember talking to my classmate, Tijuana, who's still one of my good friends to this day. Um, And she, I was like, girl, I'm out. Like, I can't, I can't do that. You know, I can't. They're asking us to do these Chekhov scenes and then go and do research to connect ourselves to these Chekhov characters. I'm like, ain't no black people. (laughs) Like, how? there's nothing about, there's nothing about me and my family and my history that's going to connect to, you know, the Russian countryside. Like, they don't see me. Right. So, like, why, you know, so all of this was kind of going on. And she... She was just like, look, keep your eye on the prize. It'll make sense. It'll don't let this you've come way too far to let this let this defeat you. And I'm so glad I listened to her because things then like second semester of my first year, things started to click. Things started to make sense. I got out. I started to strip away my ego so that I could actually fucking work. Like I I could actually like do some some real investigative work with myself and with these with these characters. And it kind of it 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 changed my perspective um on things. It's so interesting. So would you say like, you know, because I as a sometimes I teach and stuff and I uh would you say to I mean I guess it's different for each person. We're not, you know, no one is is a is is the yeah. same as everybody else. But would you say to like young kids of color at a conservatory or at a program that has primarily usually been steeped in whiteness, would you say like that it, 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 it I mean, I mean, it has to do what they have yeah. to do, but like to stick it out with something you're glad you did because you feel like it got, it helped you to, to be oh, where a- you a- are. Absolutely. Because it, it helped to prepare me for as much as possible for the reality of what life was going to be like. After school, right? You leave. I think it's it's the 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 walls, between, you know, uh, are much more porous today with regards to Yale and the industry. When I was, you know, going back then, it was still very. They didn't want you doing anything outside. Right. They didn't. They didn't want right. casting directors coming in. Um, as they would for, you know, Juilliard and NYU students. A lot of those students had representation before they graduated because they were just in the city. Right. And um, so, but it did help me. And, and so it was, it was a very tough transition for a lot of people coming out of school where you have, you have so much work that you can't sleep, right? You just want to get some damn sleep because you got this play to do and this, and this class and all this kind of stuff. So then graduating and you're just like, oh, my reality is different from my classmates where, you know, my roommate, um, I lived with three of my male classmates from Yale. We we moved to to New York um, in those last months of mm-hmm. of, of uh, drama school, and they were all all white. And there's me, and then uh, the reality of like, oh, like there they may get you know ten auditions in a week. I may only have two because that's the reality of. Where the industry was at that time, and what we both know the industry is still dealing right. with. Um, and you, 
And what I think that is is brilliant is that there was something in you at Yale that enabled you, the work you had done in, at Yale, to let the ego go and stuff, to not get yes. bitter in those months after you graduated yeah. when they have 10 and you, your agent only gives you two or whatever, and not say, well, F this, I'm mm-hmm. quitting because this isn't fair. And it's not fair. I, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it is total bullshit. Yeah. So it's not, it's not wrong, yeah. but it's also not helpful if you're going to stay in the industry. Exactly. So you were able to... Yeah, so probably if you had left Yale, you wouldn't have had the sort of um, knowledge and armor to, to sort of face the industry when you moved to New York. Absolutely, City. there's no yeah, way. There's so. no way I would have I would have uh, survived. Wow. Okay, this is that's funny that we use the word survive. <laughs> that's the name of this. I, we have to have you on for part two because we're coming up on time, and I haven't talked about oh, wow. any of your fan, oh, no. fancy, fancy acting. <laughs> No, no, no. It's my fault. It's because I just wanted to hear all about your journey from like, I really am interested at this point in my career as a TV writer and as an actor, like about conservatories and training and folks Mm -hmm. of color and training programs. That's why I sort of got um, fixated on that. (laughs) Here's what I will ask. I will ask you, Mm -hmm. well, just in the last year, what has been your favorite thing about being an actor? In this last year, if you just look at the last year, a lot of shit has gone on with strikes and, yeah. but still, what, whether it, what is your favorite thing about this last year as an act, a working actor? I, my, f- well, two things. The first is witnessing that spirit that I think all actors have to have in order to be insane enough to do this industry, and that is continued belief in the face of uh, of of obstacles that that and odds that are astronomical right so you have a, a strike that's gone on for you know six you know there's been no work um for that length of time and but people are still um even out here in LA which there's a whole other discussion about the difference between LA and New York but I just moved here a couple of years ago um even seeing that kind of that spirit of, of people out there on the picket lines, people even still creating their own art. And, and so my, one of my, be- my favorite things of this year is going to see my friends that were still making art in the face of no work coming um, on the horizon and just that, that need that actors have to just that perform, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is... Um, <laughs> making, including television. I don't know why that little thumb thing came up, but doing <laughs> um, this, the second thing is um, about being an actor is residuals from doing, you know, television and film because that, ha- that has sustained me. <laughs> and yeah, which is also speaks to why we need fair contracts because during the times that are really lean, mm-hmm. if we have residuals, there is hope yes. that we can still okay, exactly. So that, okay, keep going. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so that ability, um, because my my transitioning to doing more, I'll never leave theater. And actually, right now, I would I would read a phone book in the middle of the street. I'm so, um, stra- you know. I've, I haven't been on a on a physical stage in so long. It's been all uh, TV and film, and so um, I I um, I kind of like lost my track of thought. Um, okay, I can I can do it for you. 
you are so into because of your transition I, what i'm what i'm hearing is and you can and we can uh, what i'm hearing is that like one of the things that really got you going was seeing your people doing doing theater and yes. making art despite insurmountable yeah. seeming insurmountable odds and the second thing too is that like you're so grateful for the residuals yes. that you did get from film yeah. TV, even though you'd love to be on exactly stage, because that is an yeah, you said that so better like, than me. <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm just listening to what you're saying. So here's what I would say. I would say everyone watch this human's work because you are so seamlessly like your stuff. Your work is so layered. Find his all of the clips, all of the things. Watch the movies. Your 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 work is nuanced. It's layered. It's like a tapestry, and it's like very relaxed work. And um. I love it. Thank you. And so where can people, are you on the uh, social media? Yes, I am on, I'm on the social medias. Um, I am on uh, Instagram at uh, Laura McLean official. Um, you can find me on X, formerly known as Twitter at King Brick, King yeah, Lee. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, am I, you know, I, I do as much as I can. I go through fits and starts with social media. Sometimes I'm very active. Other time, it's just a lot of work <laughs> to keep yes. up with that stuff. But yes, yeah. it's a lot of work, and you have other things yeah. you're doing. And also, um, thank you for joining us because it was really I I know everyone's going to find it hopeful in that um, there's a lot of horrible things that are going on yeah. in the world, but I think that it's important for me to know there's also wonderful journeys that we need to pay attention to because good things are still happening. Absolutely. And so, thank you for bringing that. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.